Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, where, wherever or whenever we find you. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. And I know my corny little intro of good morning, afternoon, and evening. I'm trying to cover all the time zones and cover all the bases there. But that literally applies today because we have a guest uh, from overseas in London. So um, Dr. Ariel Hessian is joining us today. And James and Charlie are with me as well. We uh, are, are bringing on Dr. Hessian, who has a, um, a variety of, of interests. And uh, I'm just going to share just some info about our guest today. Um, he's an early modern historian, um, although he occasionally ranges outside the chronological boundary. Uh, but he has written extensively on a variety of topics, included, including anti-scripturism, anti-Trinitarianism, anti-clericalism, ball games, book burning, communism, environmentalism, esotericism, extra canonical texts, heresy, crypto Jews, Judaizing, millennialism, I mispronounced that, monstrous births, mysticism, prophecy, and religious radicalism. This is, this is a fun variety. Uh, and he also blogs uh, at arielhessian.substack.com for those who want to go read more of his stuff. Uh, he has a BA in history from Trinity College, Oxford University, and a PhD in history from uh, Selwyn College, Cambridge University. And um, he is a senior lecturer at the department, um, or with the Department of History, he's a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths University of London. So, Dr. Hessian, thanks for being on today. Um, I, I know it's 10 o'clock where you are, so that's why, you know, it's, it's a good afternoon for us and a good evening for you. So thank you for being on. So, um, you have, a all that list of all those things I just read off. Um, I, I would really be tempted to ask you about like a contribution you made to each and every one of them, but some of them, I don't even, I'm not even hundred percent sure if I'm know exactly what, you, what they are. And so I have some, and, and I'll leave it to James and Charlie too. If there's any from that list, I can read it off again uh, in a moment if they need. But I was curious about a couple of those terms. Um, I guess I'll start. Well, I really want to get to monstrous births. Yeah, I, so as I say, the whole episode should be <laughs> on monstrous births. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I definitely want to ask you about it because I think I know what that is. But um, but right. I want to. Sorry, let's start with that. Monstrous births. Yeah, yeah, let's start with that. Tell us about yeah. what they are and what. Give us an example. <laughs> sure. Um, well, luckily, I, I did a, I did a piece on my Substack blog a couple of months ago, so this one is fairly fresh in my memory. Uh, monstrous births tend to be what we would today call conjoined twins, usually. Okay. Um, which are considered to be monstrous in the early modern imagination, and sometimes they happen both in human reproduction and in animal reproduction. 
and sometimes they're invented. Now, they're nearly always seen as a portent, an idea that God is somehow issuing a warning to humanity through these monstrous bursts because they're considered at the time to be unnatural. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're also considered to be the manifestation of heresy, that if you believe in heretical ideas internally, then you're going to give birth to monsters externally through, through the body. And it's also, of course, another way of stigmatizing female spirituality and female religious beliefs because, for example, the famous um, American radical religious figure, Anne Hutchinson, was accused of having female, uh, as a woman was accused of having monstrous births. Quakers were accused of this. And some of these ideas are then invented and sometimes they're melded together. So that's really what, uh, and it's also not particular to the English speaking world. There's very, very good studies on German states, for example. I just used a case study in my blog of an imagined case to stigmatize a group called the Ranters who believed there was no sin. But some of the descriptions were based upon the earlier case of Hutchinson. Hmm. That, um, gosh, such a more enchanted time. And sometimes I want to say, like, our world could be more enchanted, it'd be more interesting. But also you have to deal with things like that. I don't, I, I, you know, I w- wouldn't want to uh, uh, classify um, uh, birth deformities as due to God's wrath. But, but um that is interesting. I will, uh, yeah, listeners, go check out um, Dr. Hesse and Substack blog for that. Um, I guess, what was there anything on that list uh, that y'all, uh, Charlie or John, were interested in? I know we, we haven't even, like, our, our Char, Charlie and James, I, we haven't even, uh, that's your name. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate knowing that. We're only the good friends or Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, environmentalism, communism, Jew, crypto Jews. I, I was curious about that. Um, and I, we haven't even introduced the main topic of what we're doing, but that's okay, just because I feel like we could, <laughs> we could maybe broach one of these other ones just for a moment, if that's all right. Um, does, does crypto Jews have to do with, um, with the Inquisition in Spain? Yes, yeah, so crypto Jews is the, is the more modern term. The, the older term is Marano which is right. considered to be, um, you might have be familiar with that, but that has rather derogatory connotations, associations with pigs, which obviously oh, right. is, so crypto Jews in the sense of secret Jews. Uh, a lot of work obviously done in Spain, uh, especially following the expulsion of Jews from, from the Iberian Peninsula, first Spain, then Portugal. Uh, because of course, it's sometimes forgotten the Inquisition couldn't actually initiate legal proceedings against, well, ecclesiastical legal proceedings against you if you were Jewish, because it only had remit against Christians. But because Jews had been expelled, those Jews who secretly practiced Judaism but outwardly pretended to be Christians could be victims of the Inquisition. But my own particular interest, because the Spanish material has been covered in depth, is the crypto-Jews in England because Jews had been expelled from England in 1290 in the reign of Edward I, and were only tacitly readmitted to England in 1656, even though there's no official admission. And so what I'm interested in are the secret Jews who live in England in the 16th and 17th century in particular, hence the crypto-Jews, and they come out in public in uh, when England goes to war against Spain in 1656. <laughs> I did a, an independent study in college. I was a Spanish major and did an independent study in college on religion in Spain. And it was utterly fascinating to learn about the crypto Jews and also learn that when the Franconian regime fell, you had a number of families who came out and said, we've been Jews for centuries, but we just couldn't say it. it I mean, it was, yeah, no, it was really amazing. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that part, James, about the, um, about this, the coming out, so to speak, um, after the Franco regime fell. But it doesn't surprise me. I've, I've certainly heard of stories of families who've been cryptos for gener- many, many generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would fit, certainly. Yeah. Wow. Um, so today, thank you for, I mean, the, the, again, it's, it's, a, it's a whole list. And, and um, I encourage our listeners to go to Dr. Hesse and Substack. That's Ariel. Arielhessian.substack.com to check out 
um, and just see what what he's written on all those various topics. But um, so today we are going to discuss the apocrypha and the apocrypha, uh, how the uh, the history of how it was received. And so um, I guess just kind of give us, Dr. Essien, um, what is the apocrypha or what is what are the books, the writings um, that are cons often considered apocrypha or considered apocrypha by certain Christian church bodies? Sure. Well, it's not a straightforward answer, as you might think. There's um, disputes as to who considers what to be apocrypha. But the version that I I'll give you is that that was considered by the Church of England in the 39 articles of the Church of England, because that is considered within the, the Church of England to be the definitive list. But it is it can vary from place to place and from different times. And that list varies even during the 16th century. But in, in the 16th century, according to the six of the 39 articles of the Church of England of 1571, there are 14 books. There is one Esdras, two Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Sirach, Baruch with the epistle of Jeremiah, the song of the three holy children, the history of Susanna, Bell and the dragon, the prayer of Manassas, one and two Maccabees. Yeah, so these, these are books that are, um, for instance, in the Catholic Church, I believe, aren't they just kind of fully integrated into the other books in what they consider yes, the Old Testament. Yes and no. So there is a slight shift after the Council of Trent. Um, and all of them are incorporated in most of the Catholic Bibles that are issued after Trent. But there is some ambiguous situation regarding the Prayer of Manassas and 1 and 2 Esdras. Prayer of Manassas is usually included, but the one that they have the most doubts about is 2 Esdras, which is... Alistair Hamilton's written an excellent book on that, so I don't talk about that much in my own work. Okay. That, that's so, considered the, the Apocrypha of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. So, the, so those kind of three books, one to two, Estras and Prayer of Manasseh, those are, even the Catholic Church would see those as um, questionable um, can, canonically. Yeah, partic particularly the, um, the Estras books, rather than the Prayer of Manasseh to an extent, but particularly... The Esdras, and of the two Esdras, the second more than the first. Okay, and, and I, I like how you brought up the 39 articles James and I were talking before the show. So the 39 articles, for our listeners, I don't know if we've, we've really, really talked about the 39 articles that much on this show. The 39 articles are uh, articles of faith found in, in, uh, in the American church. You find it in the back of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, uh, and it's, it's uh, articles of faith. Uh, that the church subscribes to, or at least historically subscribed to, and there's debates between the different church bodies that make up the Anglican communion, whether these are things that uh, the church definitely subscribes to, or whether they are to be seen as important historical documents, but not required, of course, of uh, their followers to have to subscribe to every single one. Um, but yes, I, I, they, they, they do bring up, um, that scriptures comprise of an Old Testament, a New Testament, and then certain books um, that are uh, that are apocryphal. And um, so that term apocrypha, I, I know there's there's been a variety of how there's been kind of a negative um, that's been used very negatively. It's also been used as kind of a these are secondary things. Um, uh, it's kind of what's some of the different ways the term apocrypha has been used and also like, uh, I guess, some of the history behind that? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, the point about apocrypha really is that it reminds us that language is fluid and that looking at terms and how they're used changes over time. So our modern sense of what apocrypha means is quite different from a 17th century sense and the 16th century sense, and a very different sense indeed from how it was first used. I mean, just to remind everybody that's listening, I mean, apocrypha is actually a plural. It's a plural noun from the Latin. 
Mm -hmm. Singular is apocryphon, and it has a Greek etymology uh, from an adjective meaning hidden away or kept secret. So the original idea is literally things that are hidden away, kept secret, i.e. secret books. Um, several times in the Greek version of Jewish scriptures, the Septuagint, um, it's used. But by the mid, certainly by the 17th century, Apocrypha has a stigma attached to it in the English-speaking world amongst mainstream moderate churchmen. It's considered to be something that is of value if you're interested in the history of the Jewish people and it can have moral lessons and didactic purposes, but it's not considered to be inspired by the Holy Ghost and not considered to be canonical. So it's of value and edifying to read, but doesn't have authority and an absolutely no condition should it be something that determines faith and doctrine. That's, that becomes the position. Sure. So you can see, and it's a gradual shift in the, in the story. So, and a lot of this traces back. I do want to get into Jerome in a moment, an early church father who had, who, who had his, um, who had something to say about apocryphal, but when we, a lot of this goes back to, you mentioned the Septuagint, which is the, um, for our listeners, um, and a lot of them may know, the uh, Greek translation of the um, of the of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, um, that happened in the very late BC era, of course, in the Second Temple Judaism era, and um, there's a, it, it's also called the seventy. I think the Roman numeral, right? The seventy scholars came together and translated it. So a lot of this does trace back to that these books that were um later questioned or considered apocrypha later in christianity a lot of those books were um in found in this greek translation the septuagint but when it came to the uh jewish canon well at least the the of the hebrew of the scripture in hebrew they were not in there um what why was that why was um why was why why did one uh, why did the Septuagint have it and not the Hebrew scripture or not the the closed Jewish canon as I've heard it called? Uh, good question. I'm certainly not the authority to be able to speak on this. Um, mm. I can only tell you what I've read. I mean, two points to, to mention. First of all, the translation into the into the Greek is almost certainly for Jewish communities in what is now Alexandria. Uh, it would have been for the Greek-speaking community beyond the land of what we would today call Israel. Um, as, so as to why it includes certain texts available in Greek rather than those only available in Hebrew, as I said, I'm, I'm not a specialist. Some explanations are mundane, but they suggest just chance that we happen to have Greek surviving versions because we have complete manuscripts of the Septuagint and there may have been Hebrew versions of these works, but we don't have the surviving text. Others could suggest, but again, I don't know if these are suggestions, you'd have to ask experts on this, that different communities revered different books, that there wasn't a set canon in, just different communities had different canons or different books that they privileged. And so, when eventually the manuscripts survived in certain configurations, that, that's what we have. Mm -hmm. Those would be my explanation. Well, those would be the explanations that I've read, but I wouldn't want to. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's probably a variety of um, scholarly opinion on that. There's one of those types of things. Yes, I mean, I, I would certainly recommend that you speak to a, a specialist of Second Temple Judaism to get an authoritative view. I mean, I, I'm just merely repeating opinions that I've read. I, I couldn't claim to speak. And I, I might be corrected on this. So I'm just telling you. Yeah. General. Right. Well, if, um, if memory serves, the, uh, the, the canon was, the canon of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures was, I think, officially codified in 100 AD with the Council of Jamnia. Um, so yeah. 
you but have it's still a process, but yeah, right, right. Um, and so you have with uh, with the New Testament, you have texts that are viewed as uh, important texts that are viewed as scriptural, like First Enoch, that is not even considered one of the books of the Apocrypha, but is certainly Jewish apocalyptic literature of Second Temple Judaism that is seen as influential and important and is therefore brought over into places like Jude and Revelation. Um, so it's it's you're right. It is it is a process from what I've read, which of course I'm not a scholar in this either, but from what I've read as well, there are a number of different texts, even outside of the Apocrypha, that are very influential on the early church that are not part of the Old Testament canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're that... absolutely right to me- sorry, uh, you're absolutely right to mention <clears throat> one Enoch, which is one of my interests, and I do know some of the specialists on that you might want to bring on. Yeah, yeah if there is a, a intertestamental specialist or someone out there pulling their hair, listening to us, like, no, no, you, it's this, it's not... There might be, I don't know, <laughs> but, um, but yes, I, I think, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I think, uh, there it's, it, I imagine it's probably something that's uh, a little bit up in the air, but, um, it is a fascinating period just in general of how did these, uh, how did these things form as they did, but, um, I guess we can kind of move on to Jerome. Uh, now Jerome's the, you know, an early church father, popular for the um the milestone latin translation of the bible the vulgate i think he lived in what we would say i guess the fifth century a.d is that right the 400s um i'm I'm bad with dates as much as i love history i'm bad with dates but uh so jerome late late 300s early 400s yeah late 300s early four and so jerome um he can you give us briefly who he is? How does he and how does he factor into um, the canonical debate over these books? Um, that and I know they they're oppressive. They set a precedent for a later time, especially in the Reformation disputes. But how does he how does he factor into this? What what's his um, um, how how does he approach these writings? I mean, Jerome is a particularly important figure um, and someone who is expert in Hebrew. He's also the first person that I'm aware of who designates a particular corpus of writings as apocryphal because by the point that he's writing, they've been excluded from the closed Jewish canon. Okay. So that's his importance. He's also, as far as I recall, active in uh, the province of Ben Palestine at the moment and has a very good knowledge of Hebrew and his translations into Latin become the foundation for early modern Latin versions of the text. So he's, he's a fundamentally important figure in the later story, both for his translations into the Latin, his knowledge of Hebrew and his attitude and approach to these texts And that only really changes with the advent of humanism, which we'll get to, which is the return to sources in Greek and in Latin. What we're really seeing here, and Jerome is part of that story, is, and we've already picked up on this in a sense with the Septuagint, is privileging Hebrew over Greek. Ultimately, I think if the text that we were discussing had survived in Hebrew, there'd be a very different discussion than if they'd only survived in Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, there, there probably wouldn't be a discussion. Uh, at, there wouldn't have been really a debate over. So, so Jerome is, um, is privileging or giving priority um, to the writings as found in the original language then of Hebrew. Yes. Versus. Exactly. What what is called in the early modern period the Hebrew verity the Hebrew truth? Okay, um, and is this because this seems like to me like a good idea in a in a way because it, it seems like um, 
you know, I don't know, like for even for a Christian, a Christian standpoint, I don't know unless Charlie and James correct me, but like if if there's it, when Jesus quotes the scripture quite often, and it's always the Hebrew scripture, and um, you know, so so I know that that's kind of been some part of the debate between the Christians on one side and the Christians on the other uh, on the on the apocrypha. But I don't know, James and Charlie, is it is that does that seem to you like that's been an argument? Well, I I kind of. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I find this to be really fascinating because, I mean, I've always, I've always been taught the idea that the reason the apocrypha wasn't um, initially or universally, at least, considered to be part of the canon was because it wasn't in Hebrew. Um, and it is an interesting question: what would it, what would the world be like if we had a Hebrew or Aramaic? you know, copy of Sirach or Wisdom of Solomon or something like that. Um, but, uh, I mean, to say that Jesus only quotes the Hebrew scriptures, I guess that's mostly right, but um, he, he does like the Targums too. He, he, he re- references the Targums. Um, he celebrates Hanukkah, mm-hmm. you know, which comes from apocryphal texts. He, um, and when, and when the Gospels record his words when he's quoting the Old Testament, it's interesting when you look at what is written there, because sometimes it seems like it's a straight-up quotation of the Septuagint, uh, but sometimes it seems to come from another manuscript tradition, which may or may not be equivalent to the Masoretic text that, that we have. Um, you know, so I... When it comes to discussions of canon, even in the first century, it seems to me that there are no easy answers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I should I should mention uh, because our guest doesn't know this, but uh, canonical criticism in the Lutheran tradition is kind of my thing. It's what I'm going to be writing on for my dissertation in a few years. So I find this this to be some of the most interesting stuff that we could possibly talk about. Now, what is the Lutheran for Charlie? What is the Lutheran? Uh, I, I basically know it, but I, I know you could say it a lot better. What's the Lutheran position on the Apocrypha? It, it's not bad. Is it? <laughs> well, no, it's, it's not. Um, <clears throat> the, the way that I, this is, this is a simplification and a summary, but um In my church body, we have this publication called Portals of Prayer that has little one-page devotions for every every day of the year, and uh, people subscribe to it, and they send it to them once every four months, and it has little devotion, Bible verse, and a prayer. Um, And so I think the Lutheran view of the Apocrypha is kind of as they are intertestamental portals of prayer. Um, helpful devotional literature, uh, but not equivalent to the inspired word of God. Mm. Uh, So um, we wouldn't reject them outright. In fact, the Lutheran confessions do uh, quote the Apocrypha and even use the word scripture to describe them. But in the later tradition, especially in the 17th century, uh, the way that Lutherans came to describe the Apocrypha is non-canonical scripture. Hmm. These days, even that language is, is pretty rare. Um, most people would not call the Apocrypha scripture uh, among Lutherans, though that is the way that our, our confessional documents refer to at least portions of the Apocrypha. Uh, there's debate over you know, whether just those portions of the Apocrypha should be considered non-canonical scripture, or if we should refer to the whole thing as non-canonical scripture, I would simply say that if we're talking about non-canonical scripture, that's a pretty broad category, just logically speaking. But um, I think that it would probably refer to in the Lutheran tradition, the, the standard Apocrypha, similar to what you have in um, 
in the 39 articles, uh, because that's what was included in uh, Luther's translation of the Bible. And he actually, following Jerome, labeled it Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. um, and well, that kind of speaks to what Dr. Hessian was saying about, um, the, you know, this, it, it becomes a much more of a heated debate by the 17th century. Um, those confessional documents you speak of, of, you know, your church tradition, Charlie, of course, are 16th century. And uh, they just call it scripture. They they probably, they don't see it the same way as like other things they would properly call scripture. But it's just not the it's just, I guess, not as heated yet. Right. Well, I, I would say that the allergy in England and perhaps even on the continent to the Apocrypha is the establishment of doctrine, because the Roman Catholic position on purgatory was based off of either first or second Maccabees where there's an admonition to pray for the dead. And so the reason why in the 39 articles, it says that it's not useful for establishing doctrine, but it's useful instruction in Christian manners is because purgatory was already a no-no in the English reformation as it was in the continental reformation. And so establishing doctrine would, would require that this would be a possibility. Is that, is that fair to say, Dr. Hessian? Absolutely, James. Yes. Um, and also, that's one of the points that Luther makes as well. So absolutely, just to tie in with what Charlie was saying. You know, absolutely right. I mean, and that, in a sense, unless unless I'm going to anticipate one of Drew's questions, but I was going to say, I mean, that, that, that is the fundamental issue here, is that it's an issue of authority. If you're going to break from Rome, then you're going to want to break from the authority of Rome, and you're going to want to privilege Scripture by Scripture alone, and you're going to want to break away from the idea that the papacy and church councils determine doctrine. And if you do that, then you can, if you decide which texts are in the Bible, then you can also determine which doctrines should and shouldn't be accepted. So you can get rid of purgatory by honing down the text that you consider to be canonical. And that, that's really the heart of it, certainly in England, and to an extent also how, as it begins with Karlstadt and Luther. It's a way of challenging papal authority, church council and traditions. It's stripping all that away and having a return to what they call primitive Christianity, a Christianity as it was lived at the time of Christ and the apostles, on which they believe themselves to be reliving and re-inhabiting at an apocalyptic moment. So, Dr. Hissing, I, I like how you said, um, well, there's this principle of returning back to uh, what the church was. And um, I know you mentioned humanism uh, a little while ago. Uh, and, and of course, you know, this movement that flourished in kind of the late 1300s and the 1400s. And you being an early modern scholar, humanism uh, is very much connected to the Reformation in certain ways. And do you want to speak more to that? Absolutely. I think humanism is key. I mean, the first thing to say is that humanism is an anachronistic concept. It's coined um, the 19th century by German scholars. What we're really talking about here is a reemergence, a rebirth, hence its connections to the Renaissance, of an interest in classical culture of the world of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And the particular significance for us is that to understand those cultures, you need to understand the languages. And knowledge of Latin, of course, had never disappeared from Western Christendom. But knowledge of Greek was quite limited. And what humanism does is it facilitates and encourages knowledge of Greek. And that's, of course, fundamentally important also for our consideration of the Bible and the Apocrypha. So as you become more skilled in the languages of Greek, and by extension, then also of Hebrew, you can actually read the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament in the original language, rather than relying on the Latin translation, the so-called Vulgate. And once you can read it in the original language, you can then decide whether the translation is being done correctly or not. So you get major questions about whether the translation is accurate. The most famous would be, which I'll get to in a moment, because there's another important point is that with figures such as Petrarch, um, poet and scholar of antiquity, you also get the idea that why not recover the ancient manuscripts, ancient Latin manuscripts? Now, if you can do that for 
classical authors, why can't you also do it for religious texts? Why not get hold of the Greek texts of the New Testament, the Hebrew texts of the Hebrew Bible? And then you can begin to see variations in the manuscripts. And what the famous uh, humanist scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam does is he produces an edition of the New Testament based upon the earliest available manuscripts. And he finds something rather alarming for many contemporaries, which is that there is no record in the earliest manuscripts of the so-called Yoannine comma, or a proof of the existence of the Trinity in the earliest Greek manuscripts, and that it's a later insertion. He then has his arm twisted and gets told that there's a manuscript which includes it, which is actually substantially later and is told it's early, so he re-includes it. But that process of biblical criticism is also fundamental to the story of the Apocrypha, because you can now have scholars who can actually have the knowledge of the Greek to be able to read the text, decide what should be and shouldn't be in the Bible. And it's that tension between Greek and Hebrew that we see played out and the Hebrew wins in the end, which is why the Apocrypha becomes relegated. So humanism plays a key story in that because we forget, I mean, this goes back to our early discussion about crypto Jews. One of the points about having Jews around and crypto Jews is from them you can learn Hebrew if you're a Christian scholar. So the famous uh, Renaissance syncretist Giovanni Pico della Mirandola learns Hebrew from a Jew. Other Jews, some of whom convert to Christianity either because of faith reasons or for self-preservation, take on pos academic positions. You have the establishment of chairs in Hebrew. And then once you have the first generation, they can train other generations. And so you have an extremely good level of Hebrew and indeed Arabic, as well as Greek, by the later 16th century. And that, of course, leads to increased knowledge of the, of the sacred text, increased biblical learning. And the Apocrypha is part of that story. Mm -hmm. Well, I find that whole period fascinating. I mean, with Erasmus, just, you know, go, returning to going back to something in its original language and I guess reading it side to side, so to speak, with. Um, what had been conventionally read in the Western church up until that time. It's just a, yeah, like you said, it is a early form of biblical um, criticism uh, in a sense of wanting to uh, get it right, perhaps wanting it to be faithful. I, I find Erasmus a, a fascinating figure for, I mean, he's a critic on one end, but he ends up, he's still a loyalist in another, and he was always able to dance around uh, <laughs> Well, all the, the a lot of the reformers like Luther, they 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 got they found themselves in a situation where it's it's all or nothing and there's no turning back now. Erasmus was able to kind of just evade, uh, you know, uh, you know his his own critics or his own censors, and you know, so. Well, yeah. human, humanism plays a really important part in in our conversations about Protestant theology as well, because it was because of the Advantes movement of humanism that the Vulgate came into question with translations that Jerome did like, instead of repent, he wrote, do penance. So that builds up Roman Catholic doctrine, whereas the word actually has nothing to do with the act of penance. Um, and so Luther sees things like this and immediately bristles and realizes that basically he's, for all intents and purposes, has been fed a lie. So uh, it, it is really an all-encompassing movement that leads to the Protestant Reformation um, that pours forth from it. Of course, as, as Drew was just saying, Luther was perfectly happy, and so was Cranmer, to go farther than Erasmus was, and that's why The Bondage of the Will is such a fun read. <laughs> yes. Um. I, and I and I know, like you know, this this plays a lot into the Reformation, and um, and I know, like the Reformation, we we tend to forget today, like how complex this whole time period was. And I remember uh, reading in your article um, on the Apocrypha in early modern England, um, which I will put a show note in the in the. Uh, episode description for our listeners to check it out um, because Dr. Hessian in it um, really um, 
fills out a lot more than what we can cover in this episode on this topic. But um, I, I remember how you mentioned that um, many theologians of this time period of the 16th century, I mean, late 15th going into the 16th, um, basically, they even, uh, a lot of them had humanistic tendencies or they, like you mentioned Cayetan, Cardinal Cayetan, as um, someone who uh, actually, I believe, I could be mistaken, was a proponent of a, of a Hebrew priority to uh, scripture, uh, which I thought that was fascinating. I did not know this. I mean, this is the guy, the Cardinal, who is acting as the, um, or is that Eck was the papal uh Legate, but I don't know if Cayetan uh, was uh, was basically representing uh, the Pope as well, and had that, of course, famous debate with Luther, and that's such a turning point. But even Cayetan would have been um, in favor of uh, of a he- of Hebrew priority. What's the term for that again? The Hebrew Hebrew truth. Okay, they talk at the time. Oh, yeah, Hebrew truth at the time. Yeah, Hebrew verity. Yeah. Yeah, which I found fascinating. I mean, it's because I know the Council of Trent, um, you know, ends up making a making its position very clear. And so you had all of this in the air that even, um, you know, I saw a meme the other day. Um, James and Charlie follow me. They probably saw me posted of like, you know, there were lots of Catholic nominalists. There was lots of uh, reformers who were Thomists. You know, it's not as clear cut the way we look back now at the Reformation. That uh, the dividing lines are, we kind of anachronistically uh, draw dividing lines on you know the different parties, and it's just if you were to go back and live during that time, it wouldn't have been as clear cut. So I think Kayatin's a guy that um, Protestants need to read more. I mean, I don't know very much about him at all, but. Um, one other thing that I know about him is that he um, considered that the shorter ending of Mark was probably the original. Um, he was a pretty um, advanced thinker for the 16th century. Uh, not a lot of people were known to discuss these sorts of things at that time. Um, and uh, I mean, we we basically know about him because of his interactions with Luther, but he was a pretty... He was a pretty um, scholarly guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just going to add, just following in from the points Drew and Charlie were making, but one of the things we forget is that we we tend to always think of Protestantism and Catholicism as continuously in opposition, and politically they are, and in terms of authority they are, but in terms of scholarship there is sometimes collaboration as well as conflict. There is scholarly exchange. There is literally a pursuit for truth at times. Not always, but at times. And we need to sort of get away from an idea that this is always about opposition. But sometimes it's not always, but sometimes it's also a story of cooperation, at least in terms of scholarship. And we can see that particularly with the stories told around the polyglot Bibles. Well, and in the in the English milieu, um, the Book of Homilies. Several of the homilies were written by traditional Catholics, or would have been called conservatives. Cranmer, of course, chose them because none of the homilies that they wrote would have affected his reformist agenda. <laughs> but uh, but there are several that were written by people that that he strongly opposed theologically on several grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of speaking of even. Um, so you have even within like Reformation era Protestantism and all the different strands of the Reformation, whether it's Zurich, whether it's Geneva, English, German Lutheran, um, there was so much like it's almost like um, those debates were just as heated where everything was at stake as much as you would see between Rome and Protestantism. Um but despite all that, it seems like um, despite the differences between all the strands, despite the different motivations, you could say, for reforming that they all had, um, 
and the things that they would disagree on, it seems like you, you see kind of across the board, unless I'm mistaken, um, isn't it pretty much across the board that they're uh, endorsing returning to the Apocrypha, the setting aside of certain writings because they're in question and, and putting them under the label of Apocrypha? I mean, is that pretty much an across the board thing you see in the Reformation? Really? Uh there are exceptions. Okay. At the more extreme ends, I always find the exceptions fascinating. The most fascinating of all is when you look at groups like the Quakers, um, there's a sense, and you mentioned some of my other work, some of my other work has been on anti-scripturism, on the idea of denying the Bible as being important for faith and salvation, that the Bible is replaced by the indwelling Christ. Mm-hmm. And so what the Quakers do is they point to the idea of all the problems of the construction and creation of a canon because it's been replaced by the light within. And they even push it further by looking very closely at works that are neither canonical nor apocryphal, but extra canonical, such as the um, supposed letter of Publius Lentulus, which contains the description of Christ. And you have James Naylor, who rides on horseback into Bristol in 1656, which is the year many people believe the world was going to end, in imitation of Christ entering to Jerusalem, with female followers strewing leaves in front of him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, looking how they imagined Jesus looked like. And then his question as to whether he regarded himself as Jesus and whether he differentiated between a historical Jesus and an indwelling Jesus. But these communities actually privileged um, also a spurious epistle attributed to Paul. They, they, they're founding copies of their Bibles, so they, they're privileging other texts. And that what we see in a sense is that because Protestantism doesn't have a singular authority, in England it's the Church of England, but in Germany or in France it's a different authority. And even within the Church of England, the Church of England, the head of the church, isn't necessarily the head of Protestants for all Protestants, because, of course, Protestants can claim divine inspiration and revelation, you have a conflict again. And so Protestantism has a tendency to fragment, and that also leads to different attitudes to canon formation, mm-hmm. the struggles between Protestantism during that fragmentation. Right. And that, of course, would be the Catholic critique of us Protestants, uh, James and Charlie. <laughs> so, we have no authority how can we possibly uh, maintain ourselves? Um, well, we do have authority, but you know, I'll leave that debate for another show. We've talked enough about, uh, enough about that kind of thing on here. But um, so, but speaking of the going to the Catholic Church now, the, the Council of Trent, uh, which you know was basically the Roman Catholics, uh, Roman Catholic Church's first council after the Reformation. Um, so it was really a defining council because it was dealing with the issues um, with the, of the Reformation, reckoning with it, um, and in clarifying in very strong terms that a lot uh, their own position on the dispute, disputed matters um, that were in the air because of the Reformation. So it affirms a canon of scripture at this council, like an official list, if I'm not mistaken. Um, James and Charlie, I, I've always been, I'm really bad, I'm, for as much as I love church history, I've always been bad with knowing like um, when the the official canonical list, I've, I've often heard the narrative that there isn't really any official canonical list until Trent. And then on the reform side after the reformation, they're the, it's the first time people really came up with the list, but I, I think that's uh, taken out their early councils. Council of Trent. It was very early. Um, I have the dates somewhere, but it was either 1546 or 1547. Uh, that they list Charlie, the I've just checked orders. it. You're right, Charlie. I've just checked 46. Yeah. Um, it's very early in the council, um, and uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, Martin Chemnitz devotes most of his first volume uh, to the Roman Catholic uh, of his examination of the Council of Trent to uh, the Roman Catholic view of Scripture, and he devotes quite a bit of time uh, to the New Testament canon in that, um, which is why uh, Lutherans are still one of the only church bodies that. 
uh, does not have a list. Uh, we've never, never given one. But weren't there, uh, per, I've heard though that there were proposed lists at early church councils, but there, but it may not have been a codification of it. I mean, James, do you know some of I that? I seem to remember there being a conversation about it at Nicaea. Ten, there tends to be a, there tends to be the way, the way that folks tend to think about the New Testament canon in particular is from an apologetic stance, which is people want to question the, you know, the canon and when it was established so that they can argue for the, you know, the Nag Hammadi texts like Ooh. Thomas or Mary Magdalene or Peter or what have you. Okay. But um, the Muratorian fragment is a really early example of, it doesn't have every text from the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, but all the texts that are listed are part of it. And that's from the late first, early second century, if memory serves. Mm -hmm. um, the yeah. question that always arises with these early lists of canon is what, what, what does that mean? I mean, uh, is, does it mean that the church is saying that these are the authoritative texts, or does it mean that they are saying these are the texts that we are using? Now, there's a sense in which there's no difference between those two statements, but there's another sense in which there's a significant difference between those two statements. Um, Eusebius uh, made it very clear that, um, that some of the texts were disputed and some of them were not disputed. Uh, and in the fourth century, um, I mean, the, the fifth century, uh, the lists firmed up a little bit, but uh, the question that was asked at least by Lutherans in the 16th century was, uh, were, were these lists ever intended to be authoritative declarations of what the word of God was, or were they simply the church saying, hey, this is what we're using? Uh, and, uh, I mean, the Lutherans came down on the side of uh, uh, this is what the church said that was being used, but argued that historically um, the status of certain of the books was always an open question because of um, because of the history of those books and uh, the dispute that it existed regarding them for a very long time, um, going back to Eusebius and before. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems, yeah, and I, I feel like a Eusebius, or maybe that's not, that's not apocryphal. Yeah, that's the uh, certain writings of the New Testament, Eusebius, yeah, I question the, or canonicity of. Um, so the, uh, but with the Council of Trent, returning to that, um, so, was so was this a i don't know maybe this is more of a an opinion quite was, was this a reactionary move that it made as as far as um because this is the first time it because i remember you talking about uh, i think sixtus of siena who um was i believe a catholic uh you believe prop could possibly have been a jewish convert to catholicism and and he, even him in the in the era of post-trent um, him and several others seem to still look at scripture writings and classify them um, along terms of de deuterocanonicity or canonicity. Um, how, um, I guess, did, was it in the Roman Catholic Church? Was there still, um, was, did the disputes continue? even after the official list was put down by the Council of Trent? Uh, thanks, Drew. So, really good question. So, two things. First of all, I've just been checking my notes. So, it's the Council of Trent includes everything except the Prayer of Manassas, 1 and 2 Esdras. Um, and you're right about Sixtus. He's the one who introduces this very important distinction of proto-canonical, deutero-canonical, and apocryphal. And he uses proto in the sense of first and deutero in the sense of second. But he's not trying to say that there's a hierarchy of authority. 
but merely he's ranking them by age. So there's a first and a second category, but he is creating or acknowledging a category apocryphal, but not necessarily, but he still considers them to be sacred. But in a sense, you are privileged, but you are creating a hierarchy of sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it seems to me like that's, you know, like you said, in a sense, there he's still... You know, there, there's still an um, a differentiation between the writings in this sense. So interesting. Um, now, 17th century Lutheranism did a similar thing. Um, Johann Gerhard classified uh, the scriptures um, in um, basically two ways. Um, you had canon of the first rank and canon of the second rank. And canon of the first rank was the entire Old Testament, I mean, the Hebrew Old Testament, um, plus the um, the 20 um, books that were undisputed in the New Testament. And then the canon of the second rank uh, were the seven antilegomena. And then, um, well, and then the third category was the one I already mentioned, the non-canonical scriptures, which was the Apocrypha. Um, I can't remember which ones Gerhard included in that, but probably the same ones Luther had. Um, but yeah, the, it's it's interesting how um, you always end up with um, a tiered system in canon, whether you want to or not. It it just it seems to be organic. It always happens. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's that's I, I wonder if you've come across this, Dr. Hessian, but one of the things that I've sensed about the Apocrypha in my studies in seminary and, and whatnot is that today we tend to view it less as a question of authority, a question of whether or not this establishment of a doctrine because of praying for the dead in, in Maccabees it's less about that and more about it's not historically um, the, the books are not uh, um, are pseudepigraphic. Uh, there are what, what do you call it where uh, you don't know the writer? Yeah, pseudepigraphic. Yeah, so that it becomes more historical, critical question than a doctrinal question. Would would you say that's the case? Uh. Well, I can't. I can't speak for today, but I I can say a few things. First of all, um, you've introduced the category pseudepigrapher. Um, this colleague and friend of mine has worked extensively on this, and is challenging the concept of pseudepigrapher, uh, literally a false writing, as being unhelpful, as being the product of nineteenth and early twentieth century biblical criticism, right? right. And that we're actually anachronistically conceiving of these texts using more modern categories. They are, of course, literally false writings if you don't believe, for example, that a figure called Enoch existed, but there are still books that exist under the name of Enoch, but it's not necessarily a helpful way of thinking about it. But in terms of the of the early modern period, there's we're back, we're back to the same point. It's ultimately always about a battle of authority. It's a battle of whether does divine inspiration supersede the biblical text? Does the biblical text give authority for particular doctrinal positions? And if it does, is it the question that you've decided on what doctrine is, so you decide what scripture you want so that you therefore support your position on doctrine? Or do you determine doctrine based upon the scriptures that you're given? And those are the tensions that we see in our period. Perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves. One of the things I noticed is that the, the Apocrypha becomes particularly hot at a moment that Protestantism is, if not tearing itself apart, certainly fracturing at the hotter ends, the radical Protestants, the beginning of the Presbyterian movement and the fragmentation into the so-called sects of the mid-17th century. But when, after the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688-89, and the introduction of religious toleration and a sort of a reasonably steady relationship between the Church of England and nonconformity, 
in the early 18th century, that becomes becalmed and the apocrypha becomes more interesting because it's not hot. Mm. It becomes the moment at which it can be incorporated in concordances in which you can have biblical criticism of the apocrypha, in which it's reworked into culture, into sermons, into music, into painting. And it, it stays becalmed and then it becomes hot again. In the, and we forget this in the early 19th century, when there's a tension between the English and the Scottish church, because the Scottish church is far more akin to the, its roots in the Presbyterian movement and protests about missionary activity of Bibles, which include the Apocrypha. So it, it doesn't go away. It just becomes becalmed and then it resurfaces. Okay. Um, so bef- we're getting to it near the end, but before we go, I just wanted to, um, there's a, another podcast I listen to that they do something called, called a speed round, but we won't call it that because I want to like violate copyright, steal their idea. <laughs> so we'll have a fun, a fun, a fun roundabout. How we, um, this is just some, uh, fun questions, um, for you, if you don't mind, for we can edit it out if you <laughs> later if you don't want to but um before we go um and uh just to get to know you personally um what is what's uh one of your favorite history and or theology uh books if you want to like name off of ones that have been very influential to you okay uh most influential history books have been keith thomas's religion and decline of magic um epic accounts of declining beliefs in witchcraft, magic, superstition, and the like. Gershom Sholem's Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. Again, sweeping survey of ideas about uh, Judaism. And Carlo Ginsburg's The Cheese and the Worms, which is a micro-history about a eccentric miller who believed that the moon was made of cheese and whose trial he found... Um, so, so the, yeah, it's the cheese and the, and the angels. Uh, it, it, he uses the, his a natural metaphor, and the trial was found in the Inquisition records, and he gives it a very interesting tilt about oppositions and interaction between popular elite culture. But basically, micro history through Ginsburg, Keith Thomas, Gershom Sholem, those are the the most influential books on my formation as as a scholar. Okay, what got you? Uh... Another question related to that: What got you interested in the early modern period, late medieval, early modern? Um, that's actually a fairly straightforward one. I hadn't studied it at school, so no. I wanted to. I at school I'd done twentieth century and nineteenth century, and I'd always been interested in the English Civil War. So I wanted to do the English Civil War at university because I hadn't done it. Um, and then as I did that, I did a thing called the special subject, which is an intense study of primary sources. And one of the things we did was the trial of James Naylor, the Quaker I mentioned earlier, who rode into Bristol on horseback. And I became extremely interested in that. So I wanted to do a doctoral research on radicalism, apocalypticism, uh, heresy. Those were the things that interested me. Then. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so this is the last one. We can edit this out if you don't want it. Would you... Uh, rather be able to fly or run at a hundred miles per hour? <laughs> I have to admit, it's not a question I've ever considered. <laughs> uh, I have no preference. Uh, they both sound fun. <laughs> they both sound a lot of fun. I suppose to fly, because then I could just see more of the world. There you go. That's the, that's the right answer. You win. Oh, and before we should go, we should all go around and say what if we have a favorite apocrypha book. Wisdom of Solomon, no question, especially chapter two. I like that bit in Tobit where the bird poops in his eyes. <laughs> uh, I like Tobit a great deal, but I also like Sirach. So I don't those those two would be my favorites. I like Sirach. I, I I guess I'd have to s- I guess Maccabees, because I, I like the Hasmonean dynasty. I think it's a very interesting period. Um, so I guess, yeah, Maccabees for me. There's another one that I'm thinking of that I like, but I, it's totally escaping me. So Maccabees. 
My, my real answer would be first and second Maccabees because I love history and I think that that's a fascinating time of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously for our interests, incredibly important for the development of Christianity. I mean, Jesus says, I am the light of the world at Hanukkah, like the celebration of Hanukkah. Full of lights, yeah. If we're including the second class Apocrypha, so to speak, I, I would then I would go to Prayer of Manasseh. Um, well, Prayer Manasseh and the Son of the Three Children, which I don't know if we, I guess we did mention that briefly. Mm-hmm. I, I just love how they, um, I mean, if you if you believe them to be representative of what actually happened, they really add some beauty uh, to the stories in the Hebrew text. Um, that's what I appreciate about those. Mm-hmm. I had to, oh, I had bits of Tobit read at my wedding, actually. Yeah, I forgot. I had a... Um, I'm trying to the readings for for Rachel and I for our wedding was um the house built things from Matthew's gospel the house built on stand sand uh the Corinthians reading of Paul talking about love and then uh the Tobit um would it be the midrash they do of Adam and Eve or would that be the correct term uh, in, in the, of the genre, um, that they do in Tobit. I thought that was, um, lovely. And, uh, you don't get that. It's a lot more romantic than Genesis. And it just, it just, for, it was very wedding fitting. So we, <laughs> we had that read. So okay. we read revelation 21. Oh. Speaking of apocalypticism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right after the millennium is not the millennium chapter 20. Or, uh, well, the Lamb's Feast is 19, but Revelation 21 is the new creation, the new Jerusalem, new, new heavens. Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah. New um, yeah. I have no idea what we had read at our wedding. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> we had uh, Khalil Gilbran. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Well, gentlemen, Dr. Hessian, thank you uh, for being on the show. Um, uh, thank you, Drew, Charlie, and James for inviting me in for a great discussion and for rekindling my interest in the topic. So, yeah. You. Well, I, I know it's uh, sometimes I'll I'll ask people to be on and they'll be, well, I haven't that that article's from twenty years ago. <laughs> I need to, oh, wow. But I really do appreciate for I mean revisiting doing doing a little homework before um we were very grateful so this topic is a lot of fun for me because it's one of my favorite topics and there's a small number of people on the planet that actually enjoy talking about it so um, (laughs) maybe this episode will make that bigger (laughs) bigger number of people so uh blessings to you all and uh, for our listeners our next episode will be up uh in a little over a week james charlie and i'll be returning to talk to give our fourth and final um, long-awaited theologian symposium episode where we talk about favorite theologians. So God bless and take care.